Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. So if you found Mark 14, if you would stand with me and turn to the 32nd verse of Mark 14 and stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word, and let's read this passage about Jesus. Here when it says in the 32nd verse, Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter and James and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrow, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed, and he spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Father, this morning we have worshipped you through our fellowship, through our giving, through our singing. We've worshipped you, Father, through our Sunday school time this morning. And now we approach your throne of grace through the very words from your heart that were written here in the Gospel of Mark. As we look at These last days of Jesus over the next few weeks, let us step into his sandals. Let us put on his robe. Let us smell the smells and see the sights of that city as he approached the hour that had finally come. Today, make very little of me and very much of you that you may be seen in all of your glory in this place. This we pray in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This morning we're going to look at a night at the oil press. A night at the oil press. Jesus and his disciples have been into the upper room. The upper room is located in the city of Jerusalem behind closed walls to the western part of the city. Just down the street away from Caiaphas' house. All the way across that city onto the eastern side stands the Mount of Olives. Jesus and his disciples had been in that upper room over on the western part of the city. And if you remember that he had taken the very last Passover ever to be done appropriately uh, under the new covenant and and converted that uh, Passover into what we call the Lord's Supper today, if you remember. He served them after he had washed their feet. He broke the bread and he blessed it. He passed the cup and they drank from it. And then they left that room that night. They walked across the city, probably exiting out of, out of uh, uh, the gate there, the Essene Gate, headed down into Hinnom Valley, probably coming from Hinnom Valley, crossing over the Kidron Valley, and starting their process of going up the Mount of Olives. As they went up the Mount of Olives, they came to this Garden of Gethsemane. 
As you leave the city and you walk up the face of the Mount of Olives, Gethsemane sits about halfway up on the left-hand side of this Mount of Olives. And as they headed from that valley and started up that Mount of Olives, they came to this garden. It was a garden that they were very used to going to because if you read the parallel account of this uh, gospel of Mark over in Luke 22, it tells us in verse 39, it says, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed and his disciples followed him. This was not a new thing for Jesus. Jesus spent a lot of time in this garden. See, the city would have been absolutely jam-packed with people. The city already was a hustle and bustle. But this time of the year, there were maybe 100,000 more who had gathered. There was really no place of solitude. There was no place to withdraw. Yet there was this garden privately owned there uh, on the Mount of Olives off to the side. And he knew that there could be respite there. There could be a time that he could spend there with his disciples and more importantly, praying to his father. They'd probably spent the night in this garden before all night long. For there was no place that he had that he could call home. Quite often, he and the disciples would stay together for 24 hours at a time. There was no house that would hold them all. Quite often, they probably slept in this garden together. They communed in this garden. They probably ate in this garden. They had times of joy together in this garden. And tonight, they were going to have a time of sorrow. He had told them as they walked through the valley, he had talked to them about those things that were about to happen. For if you remember when they were there in the upper room, he broke the news to them that there would be a time that he would no longer be with them. They left that upper room and walked through the valley and they talked together as they walked. There in Mark, as, it, as they were walking through, he tells them in the 27th verse, he says, Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep, they will scatter. Could you imagine these disciples that had spent three years with him day and night, hearing their shepherd say that he was about to be struck and they were about to be scattered? He goes on to even tell them in the 28th verse that he would see him again when he says, but after... I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. See, not only does he give them the breaking news that there's going to be a time that he's going to be struck and separated from them, but he gives them the glorious news that there will be a time that he will be raised and he will be waiting for them in Galilee. Could you imagine these disciples who had just had their feet washed by Jesus sitting in the upper room, had just broken bread with him and drank from the cup, are now hearing probably the most devastating news they had ever heard from this Jesus. This news that he was going to leave them. And they did all this as they walked through this valley. Now they were on their way up the Mount of Olives. <laughs> they made their way up and they stopped there about halfway up on the left side of that mountain. And they walk into this garden. It was a place of comfort. It was a place of peace for them. For they had spent hours there listening to Jesus teach. They had spent hours there hearing him pray. They had spent hours there with him just fellowshipping. For them, it was a place of, of comfort to be with their Savior. But you'll notice as he enters that garden in the 32nd verse of that 14th chapter, as he heads in with all 11 of those who are with him now, 
He says to the group in verse 32 at the end, he says to them, sit here while I go pray. He tells them to stop and sit. Quite honestly, that was probably a little unusual. There were times that he did go off to himself and pray, but I would imagine most times in that garden, he was with them. Yet this time, something was going to be very different. He tells the eleven to sit, to sit here while I go and pray. In John, the 22nd chapter, which is a shortened parallel of, of this passage in the 40th verse, he says this, When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. So not only did he tell the eleven to sit, but he gave them a little something they were supposed to do. They were supposed to sit and pray. We would think most times when we tell someone, would you pray, we're asking them to pray for us, aren't we? We say, I have something I'd like for you to pray about. But what did Jesus tell them? He said, I want you to sit right here, probably by the gate into the garden. And he said, I want you to pray for yourself. I want you to pray that you are not tempted. I'm sure they recalled what he had just told them on the way through the valley, that he would be struck and they would be scattered. I'm sure in their mind they connected the dots. This temptation that was about to approach them was the temptation to flee, to run away, to desert. And he asked them to sit And to pray that they may not be tempted. For this was going to be a critical hour in the life of the disciples. This is going to be a very critical hour. They did not yet know that they would be without their shepherd. Without their leader. And he knew. Jesus knew. That they were going to be tempted to throw in the towel. Because Jesus was not going to be with them. Notice it tells us there in Mark the 33rd verse. That he didn't tell all of them. To wait there. It says that he took Peter, James, and John with him. I find it interesting. I find it interesting that he takes the loud mouth and the two sons of thunder. <laughs> the loud mouth and the two sons of thunder. If you remember Peter, we always say he has a foot-shaped mouth because every time he opened it, he was winding up sticking his foot in it. You remember just a few moments before. Jesus had said that he was going to die, and Peter had said, it's not going to happen. I'm not going to let that happen. And the second time that Satan shows up to tempt Jesus is in this moment with Peter. The first time he showed up is when he took Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days. He said, fix the stones and the bread if you're hungry. Stand on top of the temple and jump. The angels will catch you. Look around. I'll give you everything that there is. Why did Satan take Jesus to the wilderness to do that? So that Jesus wouldn't go to the cross. See, Satan's purpose was to keep Jesus off the cross. He wanted to give him everything he would gain by climbing upon the cross without the cross ever being into play. The second time Satan shows up for the exact same purpose is whenever Peter says to Jesus, you're not going to die on my watch. How do we know Satan showed up? Because Jesus turned around and looked at him and said, Satan, get behind me. Because again, Satan's attempt to stop Jesus to head to the cross could not be fooled. 
could not be fooled. But we see he took this Peter. What about the James and John, the sons of thunder? Where do we see them show up in Scripture? The most notable place is through their mom. Do you remember? Their mom comes up because they had discussed it with their mom, probably. They come up to Jesus and say, Jesus, you said you're going back to the kingdom. Could you do me a favor? Could you let my two boys, look, look at these boys, aren't they nice looking fellas, big strapping young men? Could you let them sit on your right and your left hand? Could you just let them have a place of prominence? And Jesus told them, that's not my choice. That's God's choice. So besides, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Because to do as I do, to sit where I sit, you must drink of the cup. Do you remember? And they said, we would drink it. And basically he said, no, you won't. You don't have any idea what you're saying. I find it very interesting that he took the loud mouth and the two sons of thunder that said, we can drink the cup. The loud mouth that said, I'll go anywhere you go and I'll defend you. The two sons of thunder that said, we can do it, Jesus. We're right there with you. We want to sit next to your right and left hand. And he takes them deeper into the garden. The parallel account in Matthew 26 gives us some information about Jesus. Matthew 26, in the 37th verse, it gives us these details. For you must read all of these passages to put together the whole story. But in the 37th verse it says, And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he began to be sorrowful, And deeply distressed. It says as he went into that garden with them, he began to be deeply distressed. It says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful in 38, even unto death. And he says to them, stay here and watch with me. He left eight by the gate. He took three with him deeper into the garden. As his soul became so distressed with what was about to take place, he asked them to sit. But notice he didn't say, pray that you may not be tempted. He said, sit and watch with me. I find it interesting he would tell those three to watch. Because Peter was the big hero. He was the big strong one. He was the leader of the bunch who says, I'm with you to the end. Jesus said, if you're with me to the end, just watch. For James and John, they said, I can drink the cup. We can drink it. We want to sit right next to you. He said, sit and watch. He says, if you really think that you could do what I'm about to do, watch. And it says that he began this long night of anguish. It was probably somewhere... After 10, maybe close to midnight, when they entered this garden. It was sometime late in the evening. And I'm sure all of those disciples, including Jesus, were worn out from their long day, from all that they had going on. And there in the garden, for the very first time, really, we get to see Jesus in all of his humanity, in all of that man side of Jesus. We see the disciples and all of their humanity. Just how the day had taken a toll on them. Even Jesus. 
Yet with Jesus, we get to see the love of his Father come to the surface above all those pains and struggles of his humanity. How significant is it that they went to the place called Gethsemane? I find it very interesting. For the Hebrew word for the, or the Hebrew meaning for the word Gethsemane is oil press. They head into this garden at Gethsemane to this oil press. It was an olive tree garden. And in most olive tree gardens, it was a press because they pressed all olives there. Believe it or not, they didn't eat them in those times. They pressed them into an oil. And I find it very interesting that it says that it's an oil press because what is oil known for in the Bible? The Holy Spirit for cleansing, for healing. What is a press used for? To extract that oil from the olive, to press it out. And it's in that picture that we approach this night at the olive press. Very quickly, let's look at four points that are brought out from this scripture about that night at the olive press. The very first point that's brought out is the requirement of the sovereign God. There is a requirement of the sovereign God because Jesus said here in this passage, the hour has come. Well, what is the hour? The hour is very simply what the sovereign has put in place for the hour. And what is the hour that is there? What is the sovereign God put in place? The very first thing that the sovereign God tells us is man's sin is abundant. Man's sin is abundant. He tells us in Romans 3.23 that we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not a person that lived then, not a person that lives now that has not sinned against a holy God. It is this sin against a holy God that separates us from God. The abundant thing of the sovereign God's mentioning the hour coming in Jesus' life is the fact that there is this rampant sin in man. And this rapid sin has separated us from God. And God desires to have a fellowship with us. But there's this thing called sin that sits in between us and God. It separates that holy union. It's just like when God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve until they sinned. When he came back, he found them hiding because of the sin in their life. They could no longer be in God's presence. So the first thing we see is man's abundant sin. The second thing we see is God's judgment on that sin. Don't think that you ever get a pass on sin. Hebrews 9.27 tells us that for once there's an appointment for each of us once to die. And immediately following that death comes judgment. We either die in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because what he did for us upon a cross. And we stand before the judge saying, I'm not worthy, but the one who died for me is. And I stand because of him and in him. And we hear the words, Come on in, my good and faithful servant. Yet if you stand before that same judge, not being covered in the blood that flowed from the cross, what you do is you stand before a judge saying, I did it. I did these things. I did those things. I should be allowed to get in. And what is the words you're going to hear? He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Be cast into the lake of fire where there's gnashing of teeth. There's agony forever because you're separated from a holy God. What what is the requirement of a sovereign God? That that sin in your life be washed clean. He tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. It's not physical death because he said in Hebrews 9.27, we're all appointed to die. Unless Jesus returns before this body gives out, I will physically die. But you know what I know? The wages of sin is death, but that doesn't mean physical death. That means spiritual death. That means separation from God. And because of what Christ has done for me on a cross, there will be no death. 
For he says in, in Hebrews 9.22 that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And thank God that God supplied his own sacrifice for the shedding of that blood. You see the Temple Mount sits on Mount Moriah. It's the place, if you remember, that Abraham went he took with him his servants and his son. His son toted upon his back the wood. They left the servants at the bottom of the hill and he climbed up that hill right across from the Mount of Olives. You can look across the Kidron Valley and see the Mount of Olives. Anybody that's a real good golfer could probably hit a five iron over there. This mountain is where Abraham went up. He took his son. He laid that wood down to make an altar. He bound his grown son. He was not taking with him a five-year-old. He was taking a young man with him. He bound him and placed him upon this altar. He drew from the sheath around his belt a knife. He raised that knife to plunge it into the heart of his son because God had told him to sacrifice his only begotten son. And as he drew that knife and headed down with it, he heard a voice. The voice of Abraham, you can stop. I know now that you love me. I know now that you have faith in me. He says, look, for over there in the bush sits your sacrifice. God spared the life of Abraham's son and gave him a sacrifice. God did the exact same thing for us when he chose a sacrifice for himself. A sacrifice for himself. A passage that we've been to uh, many times. We spent a right good time looking at in Ephesians chapter 1 says this. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The sacrifice that was laid upon the wood pile and the knife driven into his heart. Was Jesus Christ God's only begotten son. How wonderful. How wonderful to know that. A sovereign God has a requirement that sin be forgiven by spilled blood. But the second thing we notice about this passage is that there was a request from this sacrifice. A request from this son. For Jesus said the hour has come. He realized the time had come for his blood to be shed that your sins may be washed as white as snow. Yet as he headed deeper into that garden, it says he became sorrowful he had this agony this great agony in mark 14 it says and he took peter james and john with him and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed if you have a king james version it says he began to be sore amazed what is there in this world that could trouble god what is there in this world that could amaze God? Because Jesus, yes, was fully human, but he was also fully God. What is there that would cause Jesus to be troubled? What is there in this world that would cause Jesus to be amazed? There's nothing that catches God by surprise. There's nothing that doesn't run through the fingers of an almighty sovereign God before it ever touches your life. But it says that Jesus was amazed at that moment. What was so out of the ordinary that he was troubled and amazed? What was so different? You see, for the very first time in Jesus' life ever, ever, he was going to witness the wrath of God upon sin and he was going to be in the middle. For the very first time ever, 
Jesus was going to know what it meant to feel the wrath of an almighty God upon sin. And he was in the middle. Jesus had never experienced separation from his father. He had never sinned, even though he was tempted to sin. He had never sinned, even though he lived a life like us among the sinful. He had never felt in his body the sin that we feel. Since he had never felt that sin, he had never felt the judgment, the wrath of God upon that sin. Yet in this moment, as he knew his hour had come, he knew he was about to be separated from his father for a brief moment, yet a moment that seemed like eternity to him, I'm sure. Now he was going to take the sin of the world upon himself and experience the wrath of a holy God upon that sin. Mark 14, 34 tells us just how bad he was sorrowful, for it says that he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful. The Hebrew terminology for exceedingly sorrowful there means he was sorrowful all the way around, is the way this word is pictured, all the way around. There was nothing about him that wasn't sorrowful in this moment. Matter of fact, it says he was so sorrowful it was even to death. Jesus, as he walked into the garden with the weight of the wrath of God shining down upon him, knowing it was on its way, was so sorrowful, he was at the point of death. Was he really about to die? Was he really about to have problems in his physical body and die because of this? It tells us in the parallel passage in Luke twenty two forty three. it says, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Here's God, the God-man, in the garden, so under the weight of the wrath of God, that an angel was dispatched to give him strength. He goes on to say in the next passage, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood. Falling down to the ground. He was in such agony that the blood vessels in his body had burst and were coming out of the sweat glands of his body in the form of blood droplets. Even in the garden, he was so agonized, he was on the verge of physical death. And God dispatched an angel to take care of him. So we see then that there was this requirement of the sovereign, there was this request then of this savior because it says that he turned to his father in the 36th verse of that 14th chapter of mark and he says abba father he refers to him as his daddy he refers to him in these terms of of love as he's making a petition to the father he approaches him in the most gentle of ways and says father daddy listen daddy He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. He approaches him as his father, and he acknowledges his sovereignty in that statement. He says, you are the almighty sovereign God, and you are my daddy. He recognized not only did God have love for him, but God was sovereign over all things that were about to happen. And then he makes this request. He says to him, take this cup away from me. Now we see what the agony was all about. 
It was about this cup. This cup that he wanted to pass. See, Jesus in his humanity wanted to bypass that cup. Jesus in his physical humanity wanted that cup to go away. He knew the pain. He knew the suffering that was coming. But that wasn't the only reason that he asked. He also knew the spiritual pain and agony that was about to happen with this cup. Why does it say cup? I found it very interesting why it says cup. Some say that cup was the sin of the world. Some say it was the suffering of the world. Some say it was the betrayal he was going to have by those that had spent so much time with him. Yet the Bible tells us that that cup was the wrath of a holy God upon sin. It was God pouring out all the anger and wrath of an almighty sovereign God upon sin. And Jesus knew he was about to pick that cup of wrath up and drink it. He was about to take that cup upon himself, which meant the wrath of a holy God was going to be dished out on him. Yet what I find most amazing is he goes on to say, after saying, take this cup away from me, he says, never the less. Now we see the humanity of Christ yielding to the divinity of Christ. For Christ says, not what I will, not what I want in my flesh, not what I desire, Father. He says, but what you will. He acknowledges that God is sovereign. He makes his request to God and he yields his will to the Father. The third thing that we see then after we have seen this sovereign request of a father or sovereign requirement of a father and the request of his only begotten son, now we see the response of this shepherd in the middle of a crisis. For it says in verse 37, Then he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Simon Peter, Are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? It goes on to say in verse 39, And again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And in verse 40 it says, And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. In verse 41 it says, Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Well, notice what he says the first two times. When he comes and finds them sleeping, he says, Simon Peter, you're, you're sleeping. Could, could you not watch an hour? And he says, watch and pray. He had told them to just watch before. Now he says, watch and pray. Because apparently, you're going to yield to temptation. He says, unless you enter into temptation. He says, because I know your spirit. Your spirit is more than willing. Because you've said you would go with me unto death. James, John, you said you could drink the cup, that you could do it. Your spirit has jumped up and said, yes, we can do it. But he says your flesh is weak. You ever been there? You ever been there in your Christian walk? You just know that you want to do something for God, but your flesh is just so weak. Can you see the shepherd? Can you see the shepherd walking up to the sheep and saying, guys, I know you're tired, but just hang with me. Just hang with me for another hour. Pray that you don't get tempted and give in. When he returned the second time, he said, 
He found them sleeping again, for their eyes were heavy, and they had no idea how to even answer him when he said, Are you sleeping? Then he said he returned a third time, and he found them sleeping and resting. This shepherd, even in the midst of his largest crisis as God-man, was caring for his sheep. He was worried about those that were around him, that they, when he was gone, would be led into temptation. And he said, please, just pray that you may not be led into temptation. So we see the request of a sovereign, or the, the requirement of a sovereign, the request of a son. We see the response of the shepherd to those that he led, those that he loved so much. But finally, we see the result of sin here in the garden. This is the moment that Jesus was brought here. For the real battle in the garden was a battle between holiness and unholiness. It was a battle between holiness and sin. When Jesus went into this battle, it says three times... He went off by himself. One version says about a stone's throw away. To be by himself to pray. Three times. Three times he excluded himself from the others to pray. To pray to his father. That the father's will be done. That he might be in agreement with that will. In doing it. Three times he woke up those sheep of his. And said Pray that you don't fall into temptation. The last time he woke them, he made a statement. Made a statement very different than all the other times. For it says, then he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? And it says in the New King James Version, it is enough. When I see that, I think about the words he's going to say in just a few short hours hanging on a cross. When he's hanging on the cross, he says, it is finished. See, his work in the garden was done. He had yielded to the will of his father, and there was no more need to be in the garden. There was no more need, for his work in that garden was done, and and God had made it evident to him that his next step was to die upon a cross. See, when Jesus woke him up, he said, it is enough. God had answered Jesus' prayer. He'd given him the cup. God had decided that his will would be done. And Jesus had decided he would do it obediently. Mark 14, 41 tells us that he had done this prayer. He had woken them up. He had said it is enough. And then he said to them, the hour has come. The thing for which Jesus was sent to earth to do was now before him. 33 years of life had come to this moment in time. He says, for my hour has come. The appointed hour of God has come. And he goes on to say, the hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Into the hand of sinners. He said, look. That's what the word behold means. He said, guys, wake up. It's enough. He says, matter of fact, look. The son of man 
God, man, Jesus, myself, I'm getting ready to be put into the hands of the sinners. We think about the garden. We think about Judas. We think about Judas coming and kissing him and saying, this is the one. Jesus, when he was in the garden, said, I'm about to be handed over to the sinners. He said, look, look what's happening around you. Look at those who are coming. Look at what God is doing in you and around you. God has given me over to the sinners. This really paints a picture of what placed Christ upon that cross. We often want to blame the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans, and Judas. Yet it says he was being given over to the sinners. And it says Jesus went out to meet them. For he said in verse 42, rise, let us be going. He didn't say rise, let us escape out the back of the garden. He didn't say rise, let us hide over here in these bushes. He didn't say rise and run. He said rise and go. Let's go meet them. He didn't wait for the sinners to show up. He went and met them. It's the exact same thing he does for you. A sinner. A sinner lost and heading to a place called hell. Jesus doesn't turn his back and run. He goes looking. It says, for he has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Here we see Jesus in his humanity, in his physical form, walking this earth, seeking and saving you in the garden. He stepped out to meet them. It says there in verse 42, that his betrayer was at hand. Jesus, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. Jesus, Jesus knew when they were in the upper room. For if you remember, he told Judas, go and do what you must. He excused him to go. He excused him to go cut the deal. Judas had told him, I will lead you to where he is, for I know where he's at. I've been with him in the garden. I know where he goes when the crowds gather. I know where he goes when he wants to be alone. I'll lead you there. As a matter of fact, when I go up and kiss him on the cheek, you'll know it's him. It tells us in one of the accounts in the Gospels that he come up and he kissed him on the cheek after he called him Rabbi, Rabbi, kissed him on the cheek. And Jesus asked a question. He said, who do you come seeking? And what did they say? Jesus. And he spoke some very simple words. He said, it's me. It is I. What happened to those thousand or so folks that had made their way up the Mount of Olives to drag Jesus to court? It says they fell down. When he said, it's me, the entire bunch fell down. He looks at him and says, I'm sure in his mind, why are you laying on the ground? You came to get me. He asked him again, who did you come to get? They said, Jesus. He said, it's me. He went very willingly when Jesus, Judas betrayed him. They met there in the garden. Judas called him rabbi, teacher. Judas kissed him on the cheek. And they grabbed Jesus and took him away. The question that comes to my mind is, who then is the betrayer? Is it Judas? Who then is the sinners? Is it the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the Roman guards? No. The sinners are you and I. See, when Jesus said, I'm being handed over to the hands of sinners, he was put in your hands and mine. See, when he would come from the garden from praying with his father and was handed over to sinners, 
he was placed in your hands. And the question arises, what did you do with this Jesus? You see, it's our sin that caused his agony in the garden. It's our sin that caused him to sweat drops of blood. It's our sin that drove the nails in his hands and his feet. It's our sin that found him dead and taken off a cross. That's our sin. And it's our sin that filled up that cup of wrath that he agonized over to the point of death. I told you we were going to spend a night at the oil press with Jesus. I found it very interesting that he wound up in this garden of Gethsemane. For as I told you, in most of those olive gardens, they would have a press to press out the olives into oil. That oil would be used in a multitude of ways in that nation. One way was used as medicine for healing. It was used to anoint. But in the Bible, most often when it talks about oil, it talks about that Holy Spirit. Think about the significance of Jesus being in the garden where oil is made from plants for healing, for anointing, and is spoken of as the Holy Spirit. For it tells us that Jesus' death upon a cross, that he bore stripes, that we might be healed. Both physically, but more importantly, spiritually. He died upon a cross that we might be anointed by God as his children. And because of his death upon a cross, he left this earth and left behind for us the Holy Spirit. The oil of the Bible. What did it take for that to happen? It took a press. Jesus, for the very first time in all of his humanity and all of his life, felt the pressure of an almighty God upon him. As he took the wrath of our sin upon his body, he was pressed by the fierceness, by the wrath of God. The same God with the power to split the earth and make the Grand Canyon with his finger. The same God to hurl the stars into the sky. The same God to, to bring man from dust. Pressed down on his only begotten son because of our sin. And out of that pressure came the oil of life. The ultimate healing. My question is this. You've been handed this Jesus. What are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with him in this Easter season? Is he going to become the oil that heals you? Heals you physically, yes, but more importantly, spiritually. Are you going to accept him as your savior so that you're healed for eternity? Or are you going to reject him? Are you going to say, give me Barabbas. I'd rather have the world than I would this Jesus. That choice sends you to a place called hell for all of eternity. To suffer the wrath of God that Christ has already paid for. All you must do is accept that free gift of Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. Pray with me. Most gracious Heavenly Father, this morning I thank you for the Garden of Gethsemane. I thank you so much for the pressing of the oil from the life of your only begotten Son, Jesus, that we might have eternal life forever with you in a place called heaven. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. 
We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.